Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the first 2022 episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We are ready to go for another exciting year of sports history podcasts. I, of course, am your co-host, Dan Newman. I am joined by Andrew Newman, my brother and co-host. Andrew, how are you doing today? Things are going well, Dan. Um, you asked me that a little while ago when we recorded our previous segment. Um, I know you don't want the curtain to be pulled back on that, but um, <laughs> this is not the first thing we've recorded. It'll be the first full episode uh, in 2022. But um, yeah, I'm doing well. I'm I'm excited to discuss this now and then not again with other people until we do this again next year. It's a topic that has been discussed in a lot of ways ad nauseum. Obviously, every year it's a slightly different thing, but um, for reasons we'll get into, people are very entrenched in certain things. So we'll obviously have to address some of that, but then we can address some different aspects of it and give it some, um, you know, give some other guys who maybe get crowded out of the discussion because of the top of the ballot, give them their just due and, and kind of discuss them back and forth. And of that topic, of course, is the 2022 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, this is the announcement. We hope to get this episode posted just before the actual announcement of the uh, of the inductees, the Writers Association ballot on January the 25th, uh, just about a week from when we're recording this, the uh, the Veterans Committee, uh, the, the two Veterans Committee ballots were already announced in late 2021. And I think what we want to do is we want to talk briefly or knowing us, maybe not so briefly about the players who were inducted and maybe some of the ones who were not inducted as part of the Veterans Committee. Now, why don't we start with that? And the first thing I guess we should do is give a little bit of background here. And baseball's veterans committees have gone through so many different iterations and who voted for it and who, you know, how often who could be considered, who couldn't be considered what they've basically sort of settled on is there's now four committees and there's the, in reverse order, there's the Today's Game Committee, which is 1988 to the present, Modern Baseball, which is 1970 to 1987, Golden Days, 1950 to 1969, and then Early Baseball, which is everything prior to 1950. Usually, at least one committee meets every year. The more recent committees meet more often. The Older committees meet less often. The one with the least frequency is the one, one of the ones that met this year, which was the early baseball committee who 
only meets every 10 years. And then the Golden Days Committee, which is the other one who meets who met this year, only meets every five years. And then the other two kind of alternate years around that. So those committees meet, I think, you know, four or five times in the course of, of 10 years, whereas the others only meet once or twice in the course of 10 years. Further complicating things, there was no Veterans Committee ballot last year because they didn't meet because of COVID restrictions, but they met again this year. The two committees are composed of some, but not all, of the same individuals. So if each committee has 16 members, and I'm looking at it's. And it's a mix of Hall of Famers, um, baseball executives, uh, historians, members of the media. So Joe Torre, Ozzie Smith, Ferguson Jenkins were all on both committees. But then you had Burt Blylevin, who was only on the early committee. Um, Selig was only on the later committee. Um, Mike Schmidt was only on the later committee and some of the historians. So it can be a really convoluted process. And the way it works is. 16 voters, they can each vote for up to four guys and you have to have 75% of the individual, 75% of the votes, you have to have 12 votes to get in. Meaning that chances are you're only going to get three or maybe four guys inducted. Five is a very distant possibility, although we came very, very close on one of the committees to getting five guys in this year. So they don't they don't let you bring uh, food into the meetings. Is that what happens? What do you mean? You said they were very close to getting five guys into the. Committee. Oh, my God. <laughs> I hadn't said anything yet. What you say? I hadn't said anything yet. <laughs> well, I was I. I felt like I had to explain the process a little bit. And then there's an even further wrinkle when we talk about the early baseball committee and maybe why I think it needs to be revamped a little bit. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. So real quick, I, you could argue that these and I don't know about totally flipped, but you could argue that it's the earlier committees that need to meet more often as opposed to the later committees, because a you know, when you're talking about pre-1950, almost nobody living saw any of those guys. So you're talking about historians and people who do this full time, whereas, you know, putting the steroid issue out of it for a second, the 1988 to today committee, those are all guys whose entire careers were played on television, mostly, you know, during the Internet era. You could argue that, you know, we've seen enough of those guys or, or you know, not that there's not guys who've been overlooked or whatever, but um, there's a certain thing of like to somebody with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you have a committee like that meeting four times in five years, that's how you start to end up with Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame. And well, and we're going to get to that when we talk about the early baseball, because especially the two groups that I think need the most attention that are probably underrepresented in the hall of fame are 19th century guys and Negro league guys. And they've been lumped in together on one committee that meets only every 10 years. So mm -hmm. we'll get to that in a second and why I think it needs to be rethought a little bit, but why don't we start with, 
the 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 golden days era committee, which is 50 to 69. And they actually shockingly let four guys in Minnie Minoso, a great, you know, Chicago White Sox of the 1950s and 60s, 14 votes, Gil Hodges, 12 votes, Jim Cott, 12 votes, Tony Oliva, 12 votes, Dick Allen, one short with 11 votes. And then anybody below four, they don't give the the vote total to. So that's Ken Boyer, Roger Maris, Danny Murtaugh, who was the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates for a number of years, including when they won the World Series, both in 1960 and in 1971. Billy Pierce, uh, pitcher for the White Sox in the 50s, who we actually talked about quite a bit when we did our Go-Go White Sox episode a few months back. And then Maury Wills, a base-stealing infielder, uh, shortstop, a star for the Dodgers uh, on the Koufax and Drysdale team. They all got less than four. And if you do the math, they all probably got much less than four because just among those first five guys, you have 61 votes out of a potential 64. So between those, those other one, two, three, four, five guys, you only had three votes total. So I guess for me, I was thrilled to see Gil Hodges get in. That has become, especially if, if like us, you grew up or live or have spent a, to- a lot of time in the New York area, that Gil Hodges Hall of Fame candidacy was one that you kind of, that was a, a major cause for New York and, you know, New York baseball fans for a number of years. Hodges, his numbers maybe don't blow you away. But he was a very, very good player on some very, very good Brooklyn Dodgers teams in that 1950s, that fabled Brooklyn Dodger boys, a summer team in the 50s. He managed to win a World Series with them when they finally won one in 55. He won another one in 59 once they'd moved to L.A. And he was the manager of the Miracle Mets in 1969. So just beloved in the New York area for his time with both the Dodgers and the Mets died very young, a couple of years later of a sudden heart attack. And had he, he, I think, and I want, I want to get this stat, right. He had the highest ever percentage of voting from the writers of a guy who never got in. Oh yeah. Uh So everybody with a higher vote total than him, either later got in on the, writer's committee ballot or on the writer's ballot or later was inducted by the veterans committee. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like this was a guy with no support ever. And he finally got in and a lot of people were very happy to see that. Yeah. He also starting in, you know, the latter portion of his career, he was a good postseason player. Um, I think he hit, uh, Let's see. What am I looking at? He hit 304 in the 56 World Series. He hit 292 in the in the 55 World Series, but five RBIs in 55, eight RBIs in 56. And like you mentioned, he was also on that 59 team. So struggled. You know, he played in what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven World Series over the course of his career and gradually, you know, became a clutch player in those later World Series, even though the, you know, the 56 one was probably his best that they lost. He famously had a horrible World Series in 
1952. In fact, there's a book uh, called Praying for Gil Hodges, which is about what, you know, at least in part about what a horrible World Series he had. He had no hits in 21 at bats in the 52 World Series, which was a seven game Dodger loss. So and then starting like, in 53, I started a year late in 53. He had 364 in the 53 World Series with eight hits started to make up for it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Starting then and then the rest of his career. And I have to think that with him now going into the Hall of Fame, I don't know if there are any I don't know if there are any infields of any lasting duration where all four guys were in the Hall of Fame. Three, obviously, you have Tinker to Evers to Chance, and now you got Reese Robinson and Hodges. I'm trying to think if there's any other infields where the three of the four guys at least are in the Hall of Fame, and none comes immediately to mind. So I was glad to see Gil Hodges get in. I was glad to see Minnie Minoso get in. He had the best vote total. He had 14. He was long talked about as the guy who was the best player, not in the Hall of Fame. If you count his Negro League stats, he's a third time, 13 time all star. Now he gets sort of wrapped up in some of that late 50s, early 60s, where there were two all star teams. But, you know, Gold Glover led the league in, in steals a couple times, led the league in triples a bunch of times, led the league in hits, never won a championship. He was, he was gone from the White Sox a couple years before that 59 team that made it to the World Series against the Dodgers. You don't know how much of his career. He probably he lost a few years to the color barrier. He didn't get into the Major League Baseball with Cleveland until he was 23, and even then it was only for nine at-bats, so... Were it not for the color barrier, he probably would have gotten in a little bit sooner. Played in five decades, although the last two was just a gimmick thing in 1976 and again in 1980 when he was 50 and 54 years old. But he he and Hodges were the two that I found to be the most deserving. The, the other thing I, I can't help but think that's interesting with a guy like Minnie Minoso is a Cuban baseball player, but like pre Castro. So not a defector, you know, Mm -hmm. everything we've known about baseball from Cuba is, Oh, the guy had like, I'm looking at it and I'm not doing the math in my head. I'm like, Oh, it doesn't say anything about like him coming over from Cuba. And then it's like, Oh yeah, he just got on an airplane (laughs) or whatever, you know, but um, yeah, he was, you know, a guy who, again, you, you look at sort of the, the longevity of the career and he was second in rookie of the year, his first year. And just, it's like, yeah, there are certainly less deserving guys already in. So just put them in already. So Dick Allen missed this by one vote. Mm-hmm. We talked about Dick Allen last year when we did our in memoriam. In fact, we even had our father on to talk about his memories growing up in the Philly area and being a fan of Dick Allen Dick Allen, you know, obviously, since he was honored by us in our memoriam in 2020, Dick Allen just passed away a year ago. Everybody thought he was going to get in this year. He was the guy that everybody thought was going to get in. And so much so that the MLB Network, right before they aired the Hall of Fame special, where the, where the announcements were way to the inductees, he the last thing the show that they played leading into it was an an interview from like eight or nine years ago with Bob Costas interviewing Dick Allen. So clearly 
everybody thought that he was going to get in. He misses by one vote. He should be in the Hall of Fame when this committee comes up again in five years, or I guess it'll be five years because everything was just pushed back a year. Five years from now, he'll get in. I mean, it's a shame that he didn't get in this time because he deserved it. But, you know, one vote away, more likely than not, he'll get in next time around. And that theme, by the way, of them not putting a guy in when everybody's expecting that guy to get in will come back up in a couple of minutes when we talk about another the other committee. And then the other two, Tony Oliva didn't shock me. I didn't. I had never thought of him as a Hall of Famer. I, I won't pretend to know a lot about the man's career in general, but he played from 1962 to 1976. I think he was briefly a teammate of, was he ever a teammate of Minoso's? I guess not, because um, he was with Minnesota his whole, yeah, so he was with Minnesota the whole time. So I just want to double check. I thought during the announcement they had said that he and Minoso were teammates at some point, but maybe there might have been countrymen because he's Cuban as well. That was probably what it was. Yeah, they're both Cuban. They both they both, you know, they both came to this country to play from Cuba. Oliva's got a lot of black ink, He's led the league in doubles five times and won three batting titles. So. I'd have to imagine there's probably not a lot of guys with three batting titles. That aren't in the Hall of Fame at least not for reasons that aren't that aren't specifically, you know, steroid related or whatever. So I guess I can probably see my way to having him be in as well. Eight time all star, three time batting champion, rookie of the year in 1964, second in MVP votes in 1965 and 1970. Like you said, a lot of accolades and and finishing high in voting and things like that. So yeah, and played his whole career. Not that this should matter, but he played his whole career with one team, 15 years. His Wikipedia gets a little confusing because it also says two-time World Series champion 1987 and 1991 because he was in a, I guess he was a, a coach on those teams. So it's confusing because I'm like, wait a minute, what? But that's, you know, that's just the way they listed. He, he's the only on-field team member to appear with all three Minnesota Twins World Series teams because he was... He was the hidden coach in 87 and the bench coach in 91 and obviously was on the team in 65. Some of the other guys with three batting titles, Larry Walker, George Brett, Yastrzemski, Nap Lajoy, uh, Jesse Burkett from the 19th century, a Hall of Famers all. A couple of you know, Joe Maurer, possibly not a Hall of Famer. Altuve, that's a whole other story. And Pete Rose is obviously a whole other story. But I could see my way uh, to, to being, you know, on board with the the Oliva candidacy if it were me i probably would and i had to choose four i probably well i i I, this is a conversation for another day but i i remain a booster for the hall of fame candidacy of roger maris but of the five i definitely would have voted minoso i definitely would have voted hodges i definitely would have voted dick allen who didn't get in probably i probably would have gone i would have gone oliva over jim cott even though he only was a yankee for half or i guess a year and a half he was a Yankee broadcaster forever, Jim Cott. And so he's a good man. He's a baseball lifer. And if you grew up listening and watching Yankee games, you heard a lot of and about Jim Cott. So on a human level, I was really, really thrilled to see him get in, especially because, he's you know, he guy's still around. He still, you know, broadcasts a game every once in a while, and he's still very much alive and with it. 
I just don't know if I can consider him a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he was only a three-time All-Star. His best years in 65, uh, he was um, 18 and 11 with a 2.83 ERA. A teammate of Oliva on that team that went to the World Series in 65, the Twins. He beat Sandy Koufax in Game 2 of the World Series that year. The next year, he was even better. He was 25 and 13 with a 2.75 ERA. 10-plus wins every year from 62 to 76. He pitched until he was 44. If you want to, the thing that Jim Jim Cott was probably the best at is he's arguably the best. He's one of the best fielding pitchers of all time. 16 gold gloves. Gold gloves. He used the same glove for 15 years. Now, again, does. It's an interesting thing because, and I'm not saying this is unfair, but Anyone else who's a 16-time gold glover at their position walks into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, I was going to raise that point, too. Different, and I'm admitting it's different, but, you know, it's like the fastest kicker in the league only meet. How much does that mean? Obviously, fielding pitcher means more than that, but, like, it is just an interesting thing of saying, like, that deserves a little more consideration than probably an afterthought. The only other thing I would say with, about that beyond just the fact that if they only play once every five days, you also have to wonder four. if, or four days, maybe back then you're right. They probably just kept giving it to him once he'd won five or six. Like how yeah. Kevin Y used to always be the pro bowl center. Yeah. They're probably just like, give it to cock. Cause I mean, how many, how many pitches, is, how many balls is a pitcher even field in the course of a normal game anyway? So again, not to denigrate it. He won them. Nobody else has won that many. You know, he had to be, you know, they didn't just randomly decide to give it to Jim Cott. So I was a little bit um, I was a little bit surprised by that, about by him getting in. He finally won a championship, by the way, just to kind of round out his uh, round out his resume in 82. He was, a, I believe, probably a reliever and a, probably a spot starter with the St. Louis Cardinals team. Let, let me see how many games he actually started in. Oh, he only started two games, so he was a very much a spot starter. But he he got in. He pitched in the postseason, pitched in the World Series and finally got his championship ring guy he appeared in four games in the 82 world series that's that's pretty good so yeah so again a good man but i don't know that he necessarily deserves a spot in the hall of fame to me if your choice is between dick allen and jim cott you got to go dick allen every day of the week yeah and especially now because it's like and we'll talk about the writers opinions of themselves in a few minutes when we get to the regular ballot but like if your thing is like well allen was a jerk to people and you know, Jim Cott was obviously like a very nice man and still is like none of the people voting on this stuff now had Dick Allen be a jerk to them personally. <laughs> so now it's just like you're you're folding in that he wasn't supposedly wasn't nice to reporters in 1971 as your reason for not putting a guy in the Hall of Fame now. I do have a theory and it's, that's not about Dick Allen, but because oh, I have a theory about Dick Allen, but go ahead. My theory with with the hall of fame. And we're, again, we're, we're, we're going to talk about the actual ballot in, in a, in a bit here, the, the writer's ballot, there was no induction in 20, right? Yeah. They got, they did what they did last year. You know, they're planning, you know, a, a regular induction this year. I think they're moving it back to a weekend. I don't know what the, whether they're going to when in the summer, they're going to do it. I don't know, but I'm sure, you know, they've, they've announced it. I'm sure. I just don't know when it is, but it's usually like late July. Yeah, and my understanding is that they're going back to that. They did it right around Labor Day last year, and we know because we were there until like a day before, but it was during the week. Anyway, 
there's a good chance that the writers don't elect anybody. And so to have Cot and Oliva there, so at least you have two in-person Hall of Famers being inducted, especially when you factor in that they're friends, they were teammates. Now, I don't know if that needs if that was something that might have been said to the voters. I don't know if it maybe was just implied. We'll talk in a minute. Occasionally, there is sort of a, hey, could you take another look at this guy type of thing? So I kind of wonder if sort of in the back of their head, they were like, let's try and get the two living guys in while they're living. That's an interesting theory. So my my thing on Allen is almost the reverse of that, which is like they have a reputation for, oh, once a guy dies, we put him in with it. Like, well, we'll wait another year so that they can't hang that on us this year with Allen. The only reason I would maybe dispute that is because he got 11 votes and nobody knows. Yeah. And that's why I prop. That's probably not the case, but. All right. Do we want to talk about the early baseball ballot? Yes, let's do that. So. I don't claim to know the background off the top of my head of all of these guys. Um, A guy by the name of Stephen R. Greens wrote a book about a year ago called Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame, Negro Leaguers and the Hall of Fame. And he made the case for 24 Negro League guys who he believes should be in the Hall of Fame, but aren't going all the way back to, you know, the before the organization of what was what's known as the Negro Leagues in 1920. Another good episode of ours when we talked about 1920 in sports and Rube Foster and the foundation, the founding of the Negro Leagues. He makes a case for these 24 guys. And he uh, I've mentioned a few times before that I did some work for Justin McGuire on his baseball by the book podcast. And I would, you know, every month or so be given a book to read and sort of write up questions and background for Justin this was one of the books that I read. So I read this book, you know, front to back, thoroughly took notes, marked it up. So great book. Can't recommend it highly enough. So I'm going to draw on that book a little bit to talk about maybe a couple of these guys real quick. Why don't I tell you who did and didn't get in? And then we'll talk a little bit about how it was done. And, you know, some of the guys who maybe I thought should have gotten in. So, the the 12 guys, and again, it's the same voting structure. Buck O'Neill with 13 votes gets in. Bud Fowler, who was a very early black baseball player, mostly in the 19th century, actually, funnily, interestingly enough, grew up in the, in the Cooperstown area. So somebody who's well known in that part of the country you know, played, played baseball in the, the 19, uh, in the 19th century by and large, he got 12 votes. He got in and then going down the rest of the names, Vic Harris, Negro league, great 10 votes, John Donaldson, uh, another Negro league, great eight votes. Allie Reynolds, who uh, was a pitcher for the Yankees in the fifties, Got six votes. Lefty O'Doul, another, you know, another, you know, white major leaguer played for a very sort of relatively brief period of time in the 1930s. He 
he played played from 1919 to I guess he played longer than I than I thought he did 1919 to oh well he had a big gap in there okay played for a few years until 1923 and then didn't pick his career back up until 1928 so two time two time NL batting champion but he only um, he only really played for you know a handful of seasons in the major leagues he was from the West Coast he was actually Joe DiMaggio's favorite player when DiMaggio was growing up and he used to periodically go back to the West coast for seasons to play. So not a guy who played his full career in the major leagues. He got five, another Negro leaguer by the name of George scales got four. And then with less than four, we had two more Negro leaguers, home run Johnson and Dick Redding. And then a 19th century player by the name of bill Dahlen, D a H L E N who also had less than four. So a lot of names that the average fan and maybe even the devoted fan probably isn't going to recognize there. Yeah. I, I honestly, for this committee, I didn't look at the guys who didn't get in. I just kind of focused on the two who did, you know, some of the names ring a bell to me. Most of them don't white baseball pre 1889 or so is, is rough enough to, to parse, let alone on top of that, the Negro leagues and, and, you know, what passed for organized baseball pre 1880 or so. So I can't pretend I, I know too much other than a few of them. I recognize the names, but I did look a little into Fowler because, you know, it was a name I recognized, but, you know, certainly didn't, didn't know too much about him. Yeah, both pioneers, Fowler in the 19th century, sort of considered the first great black professional baseball player. I'm, I'm just getting a little bit of a chuckle here looking at the Wikipedia. The ballot was announced on November 5th and the voting was held on December 5th. All 10 candidates were deceased. Yeah. Anybody- earlier, uh, a little earlier in 107 years before that. <laughs> so I was happy to see both of those guys get in. My quarrel with the whole thing is that, and it's funny because even just looking at the chart, you see Buck O'Neill in, in this Wikipedia thing categories, categorizes him as an executive. He was really everything. He was a player. He was a manager in the Negro Leagues. I think he was the first full-time black coach in you know the white major leagues. He was a scout. He was a great ambassador of the game. He was an ambassador, not just for baseball, but for the history of the Negro Leagues. He was a major part of the original Ken Burns documentary on baseball, which kind of brought both him and the Negro Leagues back into the public eye. So you knew that Buck O'Neill was going to be elected, and he rightfully was. Similar with Fowler, again, a pioneer, a good player, but somebody for whom really only anecdotal statistics exist so if you look at this chart here executive executive and then the eight guys who didn't get in were all players and so i'm a little bit troubled by the fact that this committee didn't really seem to find a way to let anybody in for their on the field accomplishments and now they don't meet again for 10 years now these are men who are long, long dead. Many of them, even their families are probably, you know, so long ago that there's not any real emotional ties. This isn't Gil Hodges widow at 90 some odd years of age, still living in the same house they lived in when he was alive, you know, in tears over his Hall of Fame induction. So 
as individuals, I don't have any, you know, obviously you have sympathy for the Negro League guys because of what they faced in life, but I'm not shedding any great tears because any of these guys didn't get in. But I kind of feel like they have to figure out a way for this committee to let some of these guys be considered more often as players, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's almost like. I hate to say it, but it's almost like if you're considering these guys at this point, just put them in. I mean, how do you look and go like, well, no, the anecdotes we heard about him don't quite measure up to the anecdotes we heard of this other guy. Like, I, I, I know you could be a little more discerning than that, but like if you're talking about a player from 1871, how are you going to like, well, no, he didn't have enough bases. You know, he didn't hit enough doubles that year. Like who or you know, in his career, like you barely can quantify it anyway i don't know the two guys who i was most bummed to see not get in were cannonball redding who again this is from this book by steve green's negro leaguers in the hall of fame they've done great strides in negro league statistics over the last bunch of years cannonball redding has the highest lifetime war of any negro leaguer not currently in the hall of fame so he would have gotten my vote i also thought that bill Dolan from the 19th century deserved to get in. He has been one of these guys who's been talked about quite a bit as, you know, one of the best 19th century players who's not in the hall of fame, you know, played 21 years, won the 05 world series with the John McGraw, Christy Matthews and New York Giants. So though, if I had had four votes, those probably would have been my four it would have been the two guys who got in. And then those two. So, just before we move on a little bit of history here and a, a thought that I have that I think is, you know, may, may not sound so great, but I actually think might be a good idea. In 2006, they came up with this idea that they wanted to do sort of one last look at Negro League candidates and let basically as many of them in as they saw fit to do and then kind of absent any information that was kind of going to close the book on Negro league candidates. And, you know, they kind of did it almost in like a football hall of fame way where they, they made a list of, you know, 90 or so, and they lowered it to 40 or something. And then they lowered it again and then they voted and famously. And we talked about this a minute ago, Buck O'Neill did not get in. And in fact, the committee came out and somebody in leadership at the hall of fame said, could you please go back in and consider Buck O'Neill again? They went back in again and they still didn't vote him in. Buck O'Neill, incidentally, is still alive at that point. He was, I think, well into his 90s. And, you know, tribute he to. And kind of getting. Didn't he have some sort of role in that whole thing of the, the voting that was going on then? He helped bring the list together. And then when they did the inductions of these guys, he got up and it was like, I forget how many guys it was. It was like, you know, more than a dozen people got in. It was close to 20. I forget the exact number. It was, it was somewhere between 10 and 20. He spoke about each one of them, whether it was personal recollections or just, you know, talking about them a little bit. So just such such a magnanimous guy. So you knew he was going to get in. They then baseball has changed this era committee structure so many ways, so many times. And just recently, just within the last like year or so, they decided that this Golden Days committee was going to consider Negro League players. Mm -hmm. And I think there were probably a various number of reasons for that, both sort of external to baseball. It was the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues last year. Plus, 
as I mentioned, there have been great strides in statistics and, you know, recognizing Negro League statistics is on par with quote unquote major league statistics. So all of that is kind of contributed to this. So, but unfortunately, and and again, I, I say this very deliberately how I choose this. Unfortunately, they've kind of done this in a way that I think is a disservice both to the Negro leaguers and to sort of the quote unquote original intendees of this early baseball ballot, because you just have so many different competing priorities, competing candidates. And what it results in is guys like Bill Dolan, who probably would have been inducted this year, had it not been from the Negro leaguers on the ballot, don't get in. And some guys don't even get considered, but then none of the Negro league players got in anyway. So I, they got to figure out some way. Mr. Green suggested a separate Negro league committee that would be comprised of experts on the Negro leagues who would be able to actually consider these guys as experts and somebody who knows the history of the leagues really well. I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. If, if the optics of that are bad, maybe you have this committee meet every five years. Maybe you split it into two committees. You do a 19th century committee and then an early 20th century committee. But you know, if they had shoved aside these 19th century guys and let a bunch of Negro League guys in, I think I might sit better with me, but they didn't let any players on from anywhere. To have Bud Fowler on the same committee ballot as Allie Reynolds, but then you have to split guys who played the guys guys who played in 1965 and guys who played in 1988 are are split by an entire three committees. Yeah. Like, yep whole committee between those two guys mm-hmm. like you know that that to me is again i get you're not gonna have well these guys this is an expert on 1913 to 1918 and this is an expert on 1906 to 1913 like as you get further and further away you're gonna have more but like and again as i understand what you're saying but like the negro leagues are a separate entity because they were a separate entity you yeah. almost it's Sad that that was the way it was and gross and, you know, all of that, not to diminish that, but like it was that way. So you need to study it in that way. You need people who are looking at that and not at the same time looking at guys whose careers ended in 1949. I agree. I agree. So can I just say something about Bud Fowler? Sure. So. Again, I don't know much about Bud Fowler outside of what I read about him here. It is very cool that a guy gets in the Hall of Fame. Bud Fowler's father was an escaped slave. And Bud Fowler in moved to Cooperstown, New York in 1859. And most people, I'm guessing, listening to this podcast who aren't listening to it because they know either Dan or myself, but our actual sports history people know that the Abner Doubleday Cooperstown baseball myth is, you know, not grounded in any kind of actual reality, but it is cool that there, here's this guy who actually did learn how to play baseball in the middle of the 19th century in Cooperstown, New York. And to add to that was an escaped was the son of an escaped slave. And sort of like O'Neill was an ambassador for the game later in life. He was basically done playing by 1900 at about 40 years of age and spends the balance of his, this is quoting from the Greens book, spends the balance of his life promoting black baseball as an organizer, scout and promoter. Uh, 
formed, managed, and often played for barnstorming black teams in the American West. His, his served as his own publicist. His endeavors helped popularize the sport throughout the entire country, and he was associated with a number of the great black teams. He organized in 1910 an 11,000 mile continental tour. Although it says it never materialized, but it was something. It was at least an ambition of his. So. Yeah, he is. He's known as a, um, a there's a there's a street in Cooperstown called Bud Fowler Way. Next time I'm up there, I'll have to check it out. So he really is a guy who all across the country, ambassador for baseball, plays on integrated teams in the 19th century before the color line sort of hardens. So, yeah, no complaint with either of those two guys getting in. Great story. I just think they need to figure out a way to kind of get some more. Players and specifically Negro League players and 19th century players, because that is sort of where the that's where there's still some real gems to mine, I think, as far as just on the field guys. Yeah, I I agree with you. All right. So why don't we move on to our feature presentation here? And that's the 2022 Baseball Writers Association of America ballot. What I'm going to do here, just like last year, let me list for you the guys. There's 30 guys on the ballot. So guys who are returning from last year's vote, and this is in descending order of, of number of uh, percentage of vote gotten last year. Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Scott Rowland, Omar Vizquel, Billy Wagner, Todd Helton, Gary Sheffield, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Manny Ramirez, Sammy Sosa, Andy Pettit, Mark Burley, Tori Hunter, Bobby Abreu, Tim Hudson. And then new on the ballot for 22 are Alex Rodriguez, David Ortiz, Mark Teixeira, Jimmy Rollins, Carl Crawford, Jake Peavy, Justin Morneau, Prince Fielder, Joe Nathan, Tim Lincecum, Jonathan Papelbon, AJ Pierzynski, and Ryan Howard. Writers vote for up to 10 inductees and you have to receive 75% of the vote in order to be inducted last year no player no candidate was inducted and so the 21 induction ceremony that Andrew and I were just speaking about was actually held on for 2020 inductees so baseball kind of dodged a bullet there that they had to a ceremony to make up from the year before. So where do we want to start with this? I think, um, I think what we did last year and I purposely didn't go back and look at who I voted for last year because I thought it would be fun to see how much, you know, how close I was. Do you want to maybe go through and list everybody you voted for? I think first we have to talk about, you know, obviously the most important part of this is the writers. Every year they undertake this in such a humble manner without any degree of sanctimony. They certainly approach this in a way that doesn't make us all think this is a matter of whether or not nuclear war breaks out. You certainly get the sense that they're not entirely pleased with themselves. When, For example, a Dan Shaughnessy decides to submit a ballot with just Jeff Kent on it, that they, that they, you know, they are deciphering the complexities of the universe that only they can understand and that even even deigning to to offer their votes to us is is an act of charity the likes of which we could not comprehend so i you know 
truthfully, the writers are the most important part of this. And all you have to do is ask most of them uh, and they will confirm that for you over and over and over again. You know, I, I actually if you um, if you want to make an argument for what Shaughnessy did, I think you could probably do it if you take it guy by guy. But he just he's kind of a jerk already. And so I, I can understand why people got all over him over it. So hey, he's, he's the example I know. But I mean, the, the, I've had to for a long time separate my love of the baseball Hall of Fame that exists in Cooperstown, New York, the building in Cooperstown, New York. The part I care, the least, my least favorite part of which, by the way, is the actual room with all the inductees in. I know that's an important part of it from the process of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And even before the steroids, I remember hearing when I was a kid about, well, they'll never put Jim Rice in because he was a jerk to writers. And it's like, we've just kind of accepted that that's like a reason guys don't get in. And and the fact that right, this specific subset of the media gets to vote on this and i do think it should be mostly the media who votes on it i don't think players should vote on it well i mean think about some of the stuff that happens with the veterans committee with some of the nepotism or whatever you want to call it with some of the guys who get in through that way this idea that if you're a broadcaster or a radio person you're or you know you write on the internet primarily that like you don't get the you don't get a vote whereas somebody who covered the pirates for the for the local Pittsburgh newspaper and hasn't actively covered them in 19 years gets a vote still. And they primarily write about golf and high school baseball, uh, you know, but but anyway, that's- I think that's a relic of the time when the only people who were seeing these guys play on a frequent basis year in and year out were beat writers. Yeah, but that's also that's why you update the process. That's, you know, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. So. All right. How, how do we want to do this? Do you want to? Um... So here's what I'll do. I will give you my top three guys and then we'll we'll talk about them. And then it's kind of a transition for me. So just like last year, I have Bonds and Clemens on my list. My top two guys on the list. They're in there last year. They will not get in. They both seem to have plateaued at about 61%. The argument I do like, and it's actually your friend, Matt, who's made this argument originally. Why do they get different numbers of votes? Who's the guy who puts one of them in and doesn't put the other one in? Um, It's usually Clemens who's slightly higher. I guess you could say that Clemens was probably an all-time great before he started with the steroids and Bonds was probably... got more votes last year. Yeah, and Bonds is actually... And we'll, we'll talk about the tracker in a minute here, but right now... With, with all these people who with the with the ballots, 43.6% of ballots have been publicly released. Bonds is tracking at 77.2 and Clemens is tracking at 76. So That's, Bonds slightly ahead again. But the, the and not to get overly political with it, especially because who we're going to talk about next. That's sort of like when the same day election results come in and one party is way in the lead. But the absentee ballots haven't been counted yet. The people who don't release their votes are the people who don't vote for Bonds and Clemens. So unless they're at about 90 percent, they're not getting it. There's usually about a 10 percent drop off for everybody, but especially for these steroid guys. Bonds's difference was 11.9 last year and Clemens's was 11.6. But so. Just to, to sort of give my the two on them real quick, I'm not going to state the case for them because everybody knows 
If you just look at their numbers, they're clearly Hall of Famers. If your argument is anybody who did steroids ever, we're not letting in the Hall of Fame. My brief bullet points on this is whatever point they were trying to make about the steroid guys they've made long ago, these two were players who were not, you know, if you want to tell me Sammy Sosa doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame because he was a power hitter aided by steroids in an era of power hitters, I'm much more receptive to that argument than I am with two guys who were already great players and and the steroids, obviously, you can factor that in, and that's why you don't have to say Barry Bonds isn't, you know, you don't have to consider him the greatest power hitter of all time if you want to factor in the steroids. But he was the best power hitter of a generation and not the only one doing, you know, taking those substances at the time. So same thing with Clemens. It's so, kind of known that Bonds probably started steroids in the late 90s. And I don't want to talk about guys like, Lloyd Weiner, who got in on a whatever sort of weird technicality. But even if you take bonds, they say that was mostly aesthetics. That was mostly they were looking to sex up the ceremony <laughs> that year. I actually heard that they, and then this is probably a rumor, but that they, when they, when they met to consider Lloyd Weiner, they looked at the stats for his already in the Hall of Fame brother, Paul Weiner, by accident. <laughs> And let him in based on those stats. This was like 1950 something. This wasn't like, you know, you, you just go get like a big book from the Hall of Records to look at what a guy is. Yeah, they probably had to send somebody to go get it. And then like, you know, the guy got the wrong thing and then they didn't realize it. So that's probably a that's probably nonsense. But my point is like, let's say through 98 bonds, three MVPs. He had home run seasons of. I don't know what his totals were in those years. I could probably could pull that up if I needed to. I could run that. But in 93, it was already his third MVP. He had 46 home runs, 123 RBIs, and a 336 batting average. I don't know who led the National League in batting average that year. If I had to guess, I would say it was probably Tony Gwynn. But damn near a triple crown. The gold glove almost every single year. Three MVPs, like I said. Makes it, you know, leads both the Pirates and later to the Giants. So multiple playoff appearances, very close to the World Series. Let me just look at Bonds, 445 home runs just in the 20th century, which is just about when people kind of suspect that he really maybe started with the steroids. So, again, he's not a super likable guy. I think maybe he's freshened up his image a little bit post retirement but for all the reasons that you mentioned too he he and Clemens are two of the best players of all time we talked much about an on the field thing there's not that many quote unquote steroid guys that you can look at and say well them not being in the hall of fame is a really big deal and chances are there's guys earning in the hall of fame who did steroids so oh, I've kind of flipped my position on this through the years my attitude is just let them both in there's a couple other guys let him be done with it. Maybe a guy like McGuire is an interesting conversation, but for by and large, guys, you're not opening the floodgates. Guys who were just power, you know, Sosa, yeah, McGuire, Sosa. And again, if you've heard this in previous years or heard me talk about it, and the third, there'll be a third guy in this who we'll talk about in a minute. I am not going to pretend that it's a coincidence that the narrative on steroids shifted from in the late 90s when it was Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa who everybody loved 
Sammy Sosa was this, you know, smiling guy and Mark McGuire was the big strapping Midwest America. You know, I don't know where he's actually from. I'm sure he's from California or something like that. But the Cardinals, you know, everybody loved that. It restored their faith in baseball in 1998 when those two guys were hitting home runs. And three years later, it was Barry Bonds, who everybody already hated. And everybody already hated him because of the way he was. He doesn't get a pass for that. And Roger Clemens who is not an easy guy to like. And then Alex Rodriguez, who people are predisposed to dislike. And suddenly we all had a problem with steroids. And I know that's a simplification, but that's also what happened is that the three guys who've gotten hung the most with steroids are three fairly unlikable individuals. And again, they have to wear that as people, but I, honestly believe that drove a lot of the steroid discourse in this country as it as it relates to baseball as it was three guys that people didn't like so do i assume that rodriguez is your third no we we will so here here, here's what i will say i have bonds and clemens on here i do not have a rod and david ortiz on here this year and my argument is again it's sort of you're sort of blending from reality into like in my idea world versus the reality of it. But if I'm sort of, and this may seem like an arbitrary distinction, but if you're going to make bonds and Clemens wait 10 years to get in, maybe let those guys wait another year to get in, especially with my third guy. I mean, unless you're really going to load up on people who are not well liked, although, Again, somehow Ortiz escapes that, and I could do it in a comedic fashion. I could do it in a serious fashion, but the fact that watch when these numbers come out, David Ortiz will get more votes than Alex Rodriguez. Oh well, let me let me just tell you right now, by a lot. By the way, failed the same test Alex Rodriguez failed. Let me let let, let's do a little Mike and the Mad Dog here and guess the number. What okay. what percentage do you think Rodriguez is currently at with uh, ballots that have been released of those same known forty three percent? Yes, that gave and what did they give? Uh, they gave Bonds and Clemens in the high eighties or the low eighties. No, Bonds was seventy seven point two. Clemens was seventy six. I'm going to say A Rod's in the low thirties. A Rod is forty point nine, and I'm going to say Ortiz is fifty five. Eighty three point six. Look, here's my honest to God thing. I don't like the Red Sox. If I was going to make a Mount Rushmore of athletes, I've historically disliked David. David Ortiz would be up there. Name me the argument. You're either consistently marshalling steroids into your argument or you're not. So if you're not fine, if you are fine. Name me the universe in which David Ortiz had a better career than Alex Rodriguez. David Ortiz, by the way, and again, I, I don't think this keeps you out. David Ortiz, did he own a baseball glove? It's funny, actually. Um, One year... Um, doesn't this lend credence to my previous argument? Now, why people like David Ortiz, I don't understand, because he was a jerk just as often as any of the rest of these guys were. I, I honestly think it's because he was kind of doughy and you know people assumed he was friendly, but in in what universe? Again, it's so much of this is based on people who they think certain guys are jerks. 
There's a lot there. Okay. Um, good. Say it again. I'm really upset now. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying I agree with this because job like this. What'd you say? I never thought he'd be jobbed like this. <laughs> so let me let me give you sort of my thoughts, and I voted for both of them, so I'm not you know you, you're not. Yeah. And I agree they should both be in. My before you go. My argument was just let him wait a year because I also have some other guys non, you know, related to this that I would put in. So my thought was just I'm going to vote for Bonds and Clemens. Let's let's do the net. Let's do the other two of them next year. But yes, you want to tell me they should go in this year? They absolutely should do. But go ahead. Sorry. I vote for the best whatever number of guys up to 10 that I can see. So that that's why I put them both on there. The argument, I think, first of all, why Ortiz is so beloved. You're right. Part of it is just he was kind of this larger than life character. You know, he is very much beloved in Boston, I think, for a number of reasons, including the season that he led them on after the marathon bombing. Now, does that get overblown a little bit? Probably. But he he was the leader of a team that won three World Series. He three World. Yeah, three World Series, uh, four, seven and 13. Right. Yeah, four, seven, and thirteen. Um, team was he? No, because he's in the Hall of Fame now. Yeah, yeah, no, he was not. He was not on that last team that won a few years ago. The thing I think he only ever failed the anonymous test. A Rod, I mean, did A Rod ever test positive, or did he just? No, I think he he because he got suspended twice. He got suspended for a whole year. So wasn't he? He was at least on that like list where they caught him. Let me let me follow up the exact details because he was like stealing, like conspiring to get evidence destroyed and everything. He was he behaved just really bizarrely and unethically. And wasn't he going to sue the team even? All right. Let's see. Uh, I think February, there was a February 9th. Selena Roberts and David Epstein, a Sports Illustrated reported that Rodriguez had tested positive for two anabolic steroids during the 03 season, which was that year where they did like the survey testing when they were first putting it in which i think was the same one Ortiz got caught up in wasn't he absolutely was during the 2003 drug survey approved by the players themselves with the promises of anonymity blah 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 because more than five percent of samples tested came back positive mandatory testing came in in 04 um and then let's see what else we had um so that was all that and then there was definitely a on February 8th, 2010, Times reported that Rodriguez received treatment from Canadian sports doctor Anthony Galea in March 09. Blah, blah, blah. And then there was the Biogenesis baseball scandal where he got HGH from Biogenesis and in 2013. And that was what led him to. So there was multiple drug related. One suspension, but multiple drug related. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, look, I I, I get what you're saying and. And it's funny, too. Here's the other thing I think is interesting. I was just reading this today. Everybody says that, like, well, we'll let and I agree with letting Bonds and Clemens and whoever else in from, you know, the night, you know, the 19, you know, in the 90s and 80s, 90s, early 2000s, whatever. Somebody said, well, I'm more likely to let people in who cheated back when there wasn't testing. But once there was testing. I have a harder time with it. I almost would be inclined to feel the opposite because if a guy was being regularly tested, there's probably a better chance that when he wasn't testing positive, he wasn't using it. Yeah. Well, and that's where you get to this like distinct. So, I mean, 
you could argue that, okay, so that guy is saying if you were good enough to cheat and not get caught, again, we could go round and round on this. I just, my, my point is to have David Ortiz be 30 points higher than Alex Rodriguez. Well, that would be something, but he's actually 40 points higher than him. So Alex Rodriguez, a guy who using any metric again, whether you're factoring steroids in or whether you're not factoring steroids in had a better career than David Ortiz did by a certain measure of magnitude by what is Alex Rodriguez fourth in career home runs. Yeah, he might be. He's he's up there. He's, yeah, he's he was close to Ruth. He didn't catch Ruth, but he passed Mays. So he's he's behind Bonds and Aaron and Ruth. Yeah. No. David Ortiz didn't play a position almost any point in his career. A-Rod did win a World Series, if you really want to count that. So unless you're the rationale for having Alex Rodriguez for voting for David Ortiz and not Alex Rodriguez is laughably inconsistent. Ortiz and, might get in on the first ballot. A-Rod may never get in. Yeah, and 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 you have to, again, I know people, well, one was a Yankee, one was a Red Sox. Uh, fine. You want to hang that on me? Fine. I really don't think I'm being unrealistic here. I don't think the Yankees should necessarily retire his number, but when you're talking about a Hall of Fame I could swallow neither of them getting in a lot more easy than I could swallow one of them getting in and not the other one. And again, if David Ortiz gets in, explain to me how Manny Ramirez doesn't get in. Yeah, no, hey, I'm I'm with you. So anyway, so I have Bonds and Clemens. If you want to consider me having A-Rod and Ortiz in, I can live with that. I just kind of maybe I made a distinction without a difference where I kind of wrote like they belong in. I didn't technically have them in on this, but they belong in. And then did you want me to name my third guy? Yeah, no, please. Let's, let's, let's go with that. He's behaved himself enough this year. Why I would put Schilling in. We talked last year about how Schilling is probably not as surefire or hall of famer as people make it seem just talking on the field. Where it's like, well, he's a surefire Hall of Famer, but he's being left out because of the things he, you know, his political beliefs. And I think he's a Hall of Famer. I think he's more of a, I think there's a legitimate case to be made just on the field that he's not a Hall of Famer, but I do put him in. When we did this last year, I did sort of a a rundown and I'm not going to do it again. I feel like I should disclose my bias and that nearly everything Kurt Schilling believes in. I believe in the exact opposite of that up to and including that it was a good thing that the Red Sox won the World Series and the oh, that the Diamondbacks won the 01 World Series. He transcended that. This wasn't conservative. This wasn't believing in, you know, when we were when we were talking about this last year, we were talking about a guy who was actively supporting overturning an election, that sort of thing. That's the only part of that I'll touch on just because I don't want to make people uncomfortable. He said some pretty horrendous things. I agree that Ultimately, that shouldn't keep a guy out of the Hall of Fame. But while he's still actively doing it, you kind of and I believe my argument last year was just be quiet for a year. He's been relatively quiet for a year. You're probably going to have to swallow some sideways comments at an induction. But uh, I do think you go ahead and put him in. So. Well, you're not swallowing it this year, though, because he's at 59.6, and I'd have him on my list. I had him last year. He was um, at like 71 last year, wasn't he? Well, 
here's the thing about this, and this kind of maybe is to your point a little bit about the writers and a little bit to the point that I think we both made last year about oh, Schilling. What was that? Well, yeah, because I forgot about this other part of it. He came out and explicitly asked to not be voted. Well, no, I'm sorry. He came out and explicitly asked to not be removed, to, to be removed from the ballot and let himself be considered by the Veterans Committee. And that's a funny thing, too, because I think that Veterans Committee, they vote either this year or like next year in, you know, for the 23 induction or the 24 induction. So he'll be considered really soon by this Veterans Committee. All these Bonds and Clemens do, for that matter. Um, He's also in his last year. A lot's been made of Bonds and Clemens being in their last year. Schilling is also in his last year. Yeah, I mean, these guys will be up for discussion again in a year or two. Mm -hmm. Um, My only thing with Schilling, first of all, I mean, there's part of me that's like, look, you asked to be taken off the ballot. You deserve what you get. I get the feeling that some of these writers are taking a little bit too much glee in the fact that they're not voting him. And they're just basically saying, well, he said he didn't want me to vote for him. It's like, my guess is there'd be guys who, if they said that you would still vote for them anyway. So, but he's not getting in. And, you know, I think we're, we're kind of noticing a theme here. These guys, they're not getting in. And I don't know. I do have to kind of say that it's kind of depressing. We talked about five guys and Schilling's a little bit of a different case. Five guys who would probably be in if it weren't for if it were just about their on the field performance. Mm-hmm. And there's a damn good chance none of them gets in this year. And Schilling absolutely would have gotten in. I, I mean, if he hadn't said, I don't want to get in. I mean, 72 percent pretty much means you're getting in the next year. I, I mean, I guess. I mean, Bonds and Clemens were both over 70 last year. No, they weren't. Were they not? No, they were in like the low, they were not over 70. No, they were both in the low 60s, 61.8 and 61.6. You're right. I'm sorry. I was thinking on their pre, you know, ballot of Chilling finished at 71.1. He was the highest. You're right. You're right. Yeah, no, he probably would have gotten in. He probably would have gotten in. Now, maybe, you know, some of the things that went on politically in the country over the last year maybe would have kept him underneath, but that would have been unprecedented for him to make it to that level and not get over 75. Yeah. All right. So now when you say you didn't have Rodriguez and Ortiz, was that because you had 10 others or again, you it's kind of like a half thing where I was like, I had them listed as like, yes, I would put them in, but I just sort of didn't technically count them against my number because I was like, well, you know, so again, you can count me as having them. I had what? One, two, three. I had four. Four other guys in, and I have a lot of crossouts and stuff, so this is tough to follow, but I did have four guys, four additional guys in. Okay, who who was your next guy? Scott Rowland, who I had last year. You had him last year. I wasn't as sure, and I, I think you may have talked me into him. Do you want to kind of make the case a little bit for him? Sure. I mean, he was a seven. He, and by the way, he got 52.9% of the vote, so he was the highest vote getter last year behind chilling bonds and Clemens. So, and he's at, he's at 69 this year. So he's probably going to end up right about in that same place. Yeah. He was a seven time all-star eight time gold Glover rookie of the year. Um, long career played from 1996 to 2012, primarily with the Phillies and then had some years with the Cardinals where he won a championship, you know, never a, a serious MVP candidate or anything like that. But, um, well, actually, in 2004 with the Cardinals, he finished fourth in MVP. A couple of gold gloves. You know, again, by no means. Eight a, gold gloves. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's eight gold gloves. I, I was only seeing the ones where he didn't win anything else. <laughs> but some of them also was like all-star, gold glove, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I just think that the career is long enough. The numbers are good enough all time. He ended up with uh, career 281 hitter. How many hits did he end up with total? Uh, just over 2,000 hits. Um, you know, 20, almost a... 20 year career basically or 17 years i guess you know and i just thought he spread it out over a long enough period of time where especially with there's not a whole lot of third baseman in the hall of fame is that right comparatively speaking as positions go third base has fewer than a lot of the other positions so so i do think he should go in all right you know i just i still don't feel like i can get there with you on that one so I'm going to leave him off. Who's, who'd you put in next? All right. And the rest of these aren't necessarily in order because I have some written down and then crossed out and crossing my numbers out and stuff like this. So take the next few of these as somewhat interchangeable um, in terms of order. I have Billy Wagner. I think the dam has broken in terms of relievers getting in where you don't have to be an all-time god reliever to get in you know, now that Rivera's in and, and Hoffman's in and some of the, the older relievers have gotten in. Billy Wagner was had a long tenure as one of the best closers in baseball for a long time. Now, you could argue at any point, was he the best closer in baseball? Probably not, but he was up there for quite a period of time. I'll give you his save numbers for... Let me give you his save numbers here. Starting in, I'll start in 98 with Houston, and he had 30, 39, then six. He must have been hurt that year. Then 39, 35, 44. Then he goes to Philadelphia, 21, 38, 40. 40 was actually his first year with the Mets, 34 and 27. ERAs each of those years never got above two with one exception 2000 was a rough year for him um had several years of a sub two era both with houston and then the phillies and then the mets finished actually how many times one two three four five six seven eight time all-star finished in the top six in cy young voting twice as a relief pitcher so you know again is he mariano rivera no but my opinion is it's time to lower the standard on what gets a closer into the hall of fame beyond are you one of the three best closers of all time to be honest yeah he was another one i just couldn't get there on i i I see the argument for him but i just couldn't i couldn't get there with him i just i don't ever remember feeling like he was i mean he was a damn good closer but i i don't know i just and maybe i'm being closers are hard to judge because of all of the positions in baseball, including starting pitching, they're kind of the hardest to judge on the traditional numbers and even some of the more, you know, modern day analytical numbers. You kind of almost go with by feel a little bit on Wagner. And I just never felt like he was a dominant closer. And I feel like to be a Hall of Fame closer, you know, you're facing he wasn't a dominant closer on. Maybe you could say he didn't do it long enough, but I mean, he was a dominant closer for a number of years there. Yeah, I just I don't know. I just I can't get there with him. I I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not judging him entirely fairly. And I guess I'd have to look at sort of, you know, 
once you get past Rivera, who do I consider a Hall of Fame closer from the modern era? Because there really hasn't been any other. Trevor Hoffman's in the Hall of Fame. Hoffman's the other one. But, you know, sort of Rivera and after, I don't think there have been any other closers that have been let in. So, all right, maybe I have to loosen. My opinion is that that bar should come down. Yeah, and you might be right. I don't know. I I couldn't go there with him either, but uh, I I see the argument. Who did you have next? All right, two more guys. I got Todd Helton. Todd Helton had a – the argument against him would be longevity or if you want to make the Colorado argument, but, like, how many arguments are we going to make here? (laughs) Oh, oh, well, steroids. Oh, you know, he played in a hitter's era. Oh, he – Played in an expansion era. He played in Colorado is now something we have to factor in that he played his home games in Colorado. Uh, come on. He finished in the top 20 in MVP voting. He had like a five-year stretch there in the late, in the early 2000s. Um, ends up with 25, over 2,500 hits. A couple of stats I point, want to point out. There's been 11 players with five straight seasons of a plus one of a 1,000 or, or better OPS. Seven of them in the Hall of Fame. Three of them are steroid guys, Bonds, Manny Ramirez, and Mark McGuire. And the 11th is Todd Helton. He had a six-year period where he had 100 RBIs and 30-plus home runs from 1999 to 2004. Every year, 30-plus home runs. 100 plus RBIs best year was probably he had two straight years in 2000 and 2001 where he had over 140 RBIs and 40 plus home runs both of those years that was the year he finished fifth in the MVP so I have Helton I don't think I had Helton last year I think I might have crossed Helton out last year but I had Helton in there as well and your fourth and my fourth is Jimmy Rollins, first year Hall of first year guy on the Hall of Fame ballot. I actually crossed Jimmy Rollins out and then re put him in. There's an article from last month on uh, SportsIllustrated.com by Matt Martell, and he talks about why Jimmy Rollins belongs in the Hall of Fame, and he goes over some of this stuff. The point he makes about Rollins is that Jimmy Rollins, compared to Omar Vizquel, who I don't have in, he's got the scale. Basically, he said, since they're the only non two PD shortstops on the ballot, I'll do a quick run through. Obviously, Rollins has got him beat by a significant margin in almost every offensive category. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. He's got him beat. He doesn't have him beaten total hits, but he's, you know, triple the home runs, more stolen bases, higher OPS by quite a bit, better war. And when we start to get into the uh, advanced statistics, um, and then the other thing with Rollins, which is an interesting point to make. From 2001 to 2014, so Jimmy Rollins' career with Philadelphia, he was the best shortstop in the National League in that time frame. Not every year, but in that time frame and possibly in the, in baseball. In, uh, from the, in those years, I'll give you his war. I'll give you his stats. For MLB shortstops, 2001 to 2004, or to 2014, rather. He was first in war, first in runs, second in hits, first in doubles, second in triples, second in home runs, third in RBIs, and second in stolen bases over a 14-year period. Now, yeah, is that a little cherry-picked? Yeah, because if you want to talk about Derek Jeter, 
you're cutting off the first five years of Derek Jeter's career. Yeah. That's still not nothing for 15 seasons or 14 seasons. I didn't have Rollins. I looked at this and I'm like, you know what? The guy probably belongs in the Hall of Fame. I'm not going to get into this nonsense of whether he's a first ballot Hall of Famer or not. And I don't agree with that either. If you think the guy belongs in, vote him in. Yes. Well, I didn't have him either. I didn't have either him or Helton. I considered Helton. I hadn't really looked at Rollins, but those are both interesting selections. You didn't have any of these four. I did not have any of those four. No. So, and let, let me give you my two that I, I had. Philly's heavy, by the way. Three of those four guys played a lot of their career in Philadelphia. Rollins, Wagner, and Roland. Yep. And if you want to go up, I also had Schilling, who played a lot some of his career in Philadelphia, too. Yeah. If, if this were to go the way you wanted it to, it would be a great time to be a New York sports fan. You'd have a bunch of Phillies and a bunch of 04 Red Sox. So, although I guess you'd also have Clemens and A Rod. So that might balance it out a little bit. And Gil Hodges. But um, okay, so two guys I had, and then one guy I considered. Jeff Kent was somebody I considered. I don't have the numbers necessarily that you do, but I think he might kind of fall on that same line as Rollins, where there was a long period where he was the best second baseman in the National League and maybe the best second baseman in baseball. At the end of the day with Kent, I felt like his peak just wasn't long enough. The numbers just weren't really there to any sort of meaningful level. So I may have even had Kent last year, but I voted for him, but I I considered voting for him this year and did not have him. Well, and real quick before you go on, it seems like we, you and I probably have slightly different bars, which is fine for, for what makes all of famer and not yours might be a little higher. Possibly. Uh, The one thing I do want to shoot a hole in immediately is this sort of argument. Cause I've heard, and you're not making it, but I've heard people before go, Oh, like you never saw people buy a ticket because so-and-so was in town. I think you said this last year and I love it. Yeah. It's like, okay. A, I don't think that happens much to begin with. If you don't live 10 minutes from the stadium and B, like, you can say that about some of the guys who are the best players of all time. uh, You weren't buy a ticket to go see them guys. So like, I'm not fact, like you can have different thresholds for what makes a Hall of Famer, but they shouldn't be based on nonsense like that is my point. Chances are nobody ever bought a ticket to see Wade Boggs. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So the first guy that I had was Andrew Jones. By the way, and- on Jeff Kent, uh, if you want to go to his baseball reference and explain to me why that's the picture they chose, please let me know. It looks like he's staring directly into the sun. Um, <laughs> he was a strange guy. But anyway, go ahead. Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones, 11, I'm sorry, 10 gold gloves, five-time All-Star, 434 career home runs. He had uh, several seasons, one season with 51 home runs, one season with 41 and never won an MVP, but he came. He finished second in the voting in 2005, which was the year he had 51 home runs and 128 RBIs. Home run totals of starting in 2036, 34, 35, 36, 29, 51, 41. Like I said, 10 gold gloves. His sort of Hall of Fame monitor numbers are not the greatest, but if you look, if defense means something, I voted last year for Torrey Hunter. I kind of thought better of it this year, but 10 gold gloves plus the offense makes me think that Andrew Andrew Jones deserves to get in. And then my other guy, and this is one that I kind of vote for 
with the knowledge that he's never going to get in. And it was this, we had the same conversation a year ago. Manny Ramirez, nine times silver slugger, 12 times an all-star, 312 career batting average. How many home runs in his career? 555 career home runs. He came damn close at least one year, I think, to winning. What was the year he almost won a triple crown here? I, I think I'm trying to remember. I feel like I looked while you, at the, while you looked that up. I'll just Manny. I agree with you on that. I guess I just the only reason I didn't put him in is, is again, it's like everything ties back to the steroids thing where I'm like, I kind of already addressed the steroids guys and I kind of like. And, I, you know, he took them. And it's like I ranked sort of the, you know, the the legacy steroids guys and then the new steroids guys and like again in a, in a world i think where steroids were factored in accurately manny ramirez would get into the hall of fame i guess i just kind of was like i did want to leave room to discuss scott helton or just uh, scott Rowland and todd helton and billy wagner and jeff kent so like i didn't want to just take the whole thing up with steroids guys but i agree with you that yeah he deserves to be in the hall of fame sort of absent any sort of, you know, whether it's this year or whatever. So I, I just wanted to sort of add that in there that in spirit, I agree with you. And people think of him mostly as a Red Sox, but he was probably almost as good on those Indians teams of the nineties that went to two world series in three years and almost won a couple world series. Don't forget him going to the Dodgers after that with Joe Torre. And I think they got to two straight NLCSs and lost him. But like he went when people, when the Red Sox kind of had enough of him. He went out there and had a couple of really good years with them too, didn't he? He was there for a for base. He was there for the end of 08 and then all of 09. He he was had an okay year in 09. He um pit 290 in 104 games and then they got sick of him halfway through 2010, which I think would have been Tory's last year. Yeah, because Tory managed there three years. And then they traded him to the White Sox. He did a little bit on the White Sox and then he had five five games in Tampa Bay uh, with the with the Rays and by the time he got to the Dodgers I think that was when some of the PED suspension started with him and then when he was in Tampa didn't he test positive and then he just decided to retire I think yeah I think like if he signed tomorrow he'd still be still be suspended he'd be facing like an 80 game suspension or something like that but let's look here just real quick at you know starting in 1999 and you can start even earlier but start in 99 333, 351, 306, 349, 325, 308, a down year in 05 with uh, only a 292 batting average. He bounces right back to hit 321. Home run seasons in the 40s a bunch of times. Never does he ever hit 50, never hits 50. 99, he's got 44 home runs, 165 RBIs, and a 333 batting average. Only the 165 RBIs lead the league, but I'd have to imagine that 44 home runs and a 333 batting average were pretty damn close to the top. So probably with a, with a few things going differently, he could have won the triple crown that year. There were times when people were saying he was the best right-handed hitter, just pure hitter in 30 or 40 years. So a lot of steroids and, and you know, unlike some of these other guys, he was not only on steroids, but he was sort of, unstably on steroids and that he was just kind of taking them and flaunting the rules. And he, he's, he's a troubled guy, Manny Ramirez. 
do you, do you ever hear about him anymore? Not that I can think of. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It's kind of like plenty of the other steroid guys who like, you know, the two guys we talked about most is like um, first uh, the first year guys this year are both all over Fox. They won't be in the Hall of Fame, but they'll be on the or A Rod's on Sunday Night Baseball every week, and many uh, David Ortiz is on like the Fox Studio Show. A Rod and Michael K uh, next year doing yeah, Sunday Night to rip off the Manning cast, which is again just goes back to my thought that like yes. PN is somehow under the impression that we're all in the midst of this national love affair with with Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> we're really all not like I just I can't envision the circumstances where I would watch that for more than five minutes, but or more than two minutes. But anyway, I digress. So those are our lists. Um, was there anybody else that you kind of thought? I'm just looking kind of at the ballot for last year. I want to talk about a guy who is not going to get in, should not get in. But I want to talk about real quick. And that's a guy who's on the ballot for the first time this year. And that's Tim Lincecum did not do it long enough. I'm not advocating him being in the Hall of Fame, but we should at least talk about a guy who for a couple of years there was not only the best player in baseball, the best pitcher in baseball. He won two straight Cy Youngs in 2008 and 2009 was a force of nature. I mean, it really was, was all that was a great as I was ending college. And and then, you know, while we were living together when I was in DC, he was this long haired, fresh faced. He was what in his early twenties at the time he was 20 rail thin. Yeah. Rail thin had this insane delivery that everybody was, you know, all the experts were saying was a ticking time bomb. But he comes up in 07 and is okay. Then in 08, he's 18 and 5 with a 2.62 ERA. The next year, he's 15 and 7 with a 2.48 ERA. By 2010, he's fallen off a little bit, but he goes 16 and 10, 3.43 ERA, and they win the World Series. The first time the Giants win the World Series in 56 years since they were in New York. By the next year, he still has another good year in 2011, even though he finishes with a losing record, but a sub three ERA. And then basically the wheels fall off. So they were right. Yeah, he has another, you know, his, he pitches several more full seasons, but not effectively. And by 2016, he pitches half a year or not even half a year with the Angels and he's out of baseball. Again, I'm not saying he's a Hall of Famer. It's an interesting argument to say how many more years would he've had to do it to be a Hall of Famer if the guy won three Cy Youngs in a row or four in five years? Are we talking about a Terrell Davis kind of career where he was dominant enough that the short time frame is overcomeable? As it is, he's almost Dwight Gooden, but is not, you know, Dwight Gooden's career was Dwight Gooden's prime of his career ended largely for Doc Gooden reasons, whereas Lincecum was just sometimes that happens reasons and, and mechanics reasons. But I, I would be remiss to not just like mention the guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he let me just see. I, I don't think he's even doing now. He's at two point nine. So he won't he won't stay on the ballot. Yeah, no, no I, I, again, I'm not saying I wouldn't vote for him. I'm not saying people should vote for him. It's just an interesting name as you look at 
the guys who were on the list this year. The other two that I would mention Sheffield to me, Gary Sheffield's an interesting case. He was at 40.6 last year. He's currently at 46.2. So he's going to be at about the same level. There were some sort of, there were at least steroid allegations with him, I believe. Oh yeah. 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 There was at least, you know, the guy, the guy's got 509 career home runs. I think he's hurt by any number of things. He's hurt by his personality. He's hurt by his, the fact that he was on steroids. He's hurt by the fact that he kind of bounced around to all of these different teams. He's hurt by the fact that other than 97 with the Marlins, he never won any championships. He never really led the league in much of anything. So yeah, I I probably, even if you put his personality aside, I would not vote for Gary Sheffield. And then the other guy who I think we should just mention and a guy who probably would not have gotten in anyway and now will never get in. And that's Omar Vizquel, who was kind of a little bit on an upward trajectory. He had he was fifth last year with 49 percent of the votes. This is his fifth year. On the ballot, he is the prototypical guy who, if he got in, it would be defense, 11 gold gloves. And, you know, these were gold gloves, one in an era when Jeter and A-Rod, Nomar and all those guys were starting to come into the league and heat Tejada. And he was the gold glove shortstop in the American League every year from 93 all the way through to 2001. He was one of these guys who was sort of a. He was like the smart person's pick for the Hall of Fame. It was like, well, you know, look at Omar Vizquel. Look at look at some of the defense that he that he had. He also had one of the funniest, funniest feuds in Jose ba- where he made a comment, I think, in like one of his like some ghost written autobiography about Mesa coming to the into the game in the 97 World Series and saying basically that, uh, you know, Jose wasn't up to the moment and he blew the yeah, game. The eyes of the world were focused on every move we made. Unfortunately, Jose's own eyes were vacant, completely empty. Nobody home. You could almost see right through him. Not long after I looked out into his vacant eyes, he blew the save and the Marlins tied the game. Even my little boy told me to go get him. If I face him 10 more times, I'll hit him 10 times. I want to kill him. Yeah, that was Mesa's response. Yeah, and Mesa said, if if I, you know, I'm just going to hit him every time. Then he, he basically tried to do it. The next few times he faced him, he hit him. So uh, he was arrested in late 2020 on allegations of domestic violence, of assaulting his at the time wife. And then it later came out that he um, was accused of, of some sort of a sexual harassment of a of a, a Bat Boy, which is an interesting. Um, and I was not aware of that. Um, an interesting There's twist. Also abuse allegations too. Say again. There's also been domestic abuse allegations. Well, that was what I was talking about before about how he was arrested in 2020 yeah. from his his wife. Yeah. So, yeah, and then he did separate things. So, again, you know, who he's not going to get in, regardless of what comes out. He's just not going to get in, and he he pulled he. Pulled in about well, what did I say last year? Forty something percent of the vote. He he pulled in forty nine point one, so almost fifty. And this year he is at eleven. 
he may even drop off the ballot. And it would be hard to attribute it to anything other than his his recent brushes with the law. So before we wrap up and not about fiscal, but can I just make kind of one more point? Because it came up with a rod and Ortiz and has been used against other guys, both in the Hall of Fame discussions and just in general. That 03 test, those were supposed to be confidential. The fact that those then got out, because the whole point at the time was, again, if you're a certain amount, you know, young or just didn't know, there was a big controversy about instituting any kind of drug testing in baseball. Obviously, the baseball players union is very powerful. I'm not assigning right or wrong to that, but they're very powerful. And there was this whole discussion and it took a lot for it to even be agreed. Okay. We're going to do baseline anonymous survey testing to see how many of our guys are on performance enhancing drugs. And so many of those names have gotten out and it's really not fair that again, if I'll, I'll use myself as an example. If my job told me they were conducting anonymous drug testing and then my name came out as somebody who failed the drug test and was in the newspapers, I would be pretty upset about that. So I just, I just kind of wanted to throw that in that if you tested, if that O3 thing wasn't getting caught, it was your name leaked out in what was supposed to be a confidential test. So I, I just feel like that should get factored in. Yeah. And I also think that it's worth noting that, there were real world implications to the problem beyond just the record book. Good point. Very good point. The cons- but I'm agreeing with you in sort of a convoluted way here. The issue was, I mean, one of the issues was just that the sport was becoming a farce, but also that young people, young boys, you know, young men were using steroids because they thought it was the only way to get ahead in Major League Baseball. And a relatively small minority, but still a noticeable number, were having adverse physical and mental health effects from them, including many who committed suicide because of what the hormones did to their still growing bodies and brains. This anonymous testing was a good faith effort to get at that problem. <clears throat> now, Some of the folks associated with the union, including the still living Marvin Miller, who wanted to compare steroids to no worse than cigarette smoking. That was nonsense. And that was just, you know, political posturing. But the union and the league, more so the owners, I'd say, than the union, but both sides were trying to find a solution to the problem, not just because of the record book, but because of what was seen as a societal concern and so i think sort of to your point to say well you know my point is that they were trying to help with this anonymous testing and 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 i don't um because let's be honest if the union wanted to not have it they probably could have not had it with how powerful that union is you also have to factor in that that wasn't just pr there were probably a fair number of players within that union lots of pitchers and lots of border, you know, maybe not superstar power hitters who said, 
I don't like that I'm losing my job to people who are using illegal steroids. And I basically either have to lose my job or take steroids. Yeah. You know, the league doesn't just represent or the union doesn't just represent Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and stuff. And I don't want to. In fact, I think Bonds didn't even join the union, but it's a different story. My, and it, just to sum up, my position on these guys getting in who took steroids is not who cares about steroids. It didn't matter. My favorite is it doesn't help help you well then why are they taking them none of those are my position i do i do think the game is better for the fact that they're serious about steroids now i am glad they did what they did in terms of cracking down on that because like you said i mean i bring wrestling up jokingly often in this podcast and certainly there were other factors at play steroids are a big reason most wrestlers die at 45 And there's plenty of other reasons, but steroids are a part of it. So the fact that baseball has done everything they can in their power to get rid of steroids, or I don't want to say everything they've done in their power, they've done a lot to get rid of steroids, is a good thing. My issue and what we've talked about with some of these guys is you're letting what was a societal, organizational, league-wide issue you're letting these teams and owners who got rich on this and TV networks and whoever say, well, we solved the problem. And now the five guys or six guys who profited, the benefited the most from that on the field, we're going to pretend they were the ones who were entirely at fault for this and not let them into the hall of fame. And that's my position on this. Again, if you, if a guy gets caught doing steroids tomorrow, a current player, suspend him for whatever the CBA agrees with. I'm not saying who cares, but let's not be total hypocrites about what that meant in 1999 or 2000 or 2001. I think you need to separate the idea of punishing these guys because they use steroids with factoring it into their performance. And that's why when we talk about like, you know, I always bring up Palmero. It's fair to look at that guy and say, well, if he didn't do steroids, what would he have been? That I'm fine with. But you're right to say, well, there's a positive test there. So they cheated the sport. So they should be kept out. I, I just I can't go there. It just it, it just it has to especially because I just think it needs to it needs to end at some point. One thing I will say on that point, too, and I, I don't know if you agree with me on this, the idea of letting these guys in and then putting it on the plaque is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. No, it's again, it's it's something that somebody with that to me, and I hate to say this because it's the generation I grew up on, but that's blog thinking. Yeah, that, that's like it's almost like how every they always the joke is every six months, one of these tech billionaires invents the bus. <laughs> Have you heard that expression no. where they're like, oh, we came up with the revolutionary idea and it's like, oh, that's a city bus. Like, what about what about like a vehicle that like you just go outside your house and it picks you up and everybody goes to work at the same time and we save gas and we offset carbon emissions. It's like, yeah, you just invented the bus. You just invented the library. Like, that's what that feels like to me is like blog thought like, well, what if we put them in, but we put it on the plaque or, or you know, it's like, no, just just let them in. Just let them in. Nobody cares 
is going to not know that. And the people who don't care already don't care. And to be honest, again, whatever your problems are with Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds or Alex Rodriguez or David Ortiz or whatever, whoever they are, if they told me, we're going to let you in, but half of your plaque is going to be insulting to you, I'd be like, well, screw you. Yeah, and then I also worry about a slippery slope. But then it's like, well, you know, what about the guys who are racist? What about the guys who are this? And all of a sudden, everybody's plaque is just going to be, you know, all the crap they did in their life. Half negative. And 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 I'll just say the, the last thing when we're talking about steroids and we're talking about other guys because it becomes a slippery whatever. Pete Rose does not belong in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Pete Rose gambled on baseball as the manager of a team. Pete Rose, as a player, it's, it's, it's worse to gamble on baseball as the manager of a team than as the player of a team. Because... Again, we, we could go through all this, but Pete Rose, if he had a bet on a game, could have used his closer for three innings and then lost a game the next night because his closer wasn't available. You're not allowed to gamble on baseball. That's not a new rule. And Pete Rose knew that going in. You're not allowed to gamble on baseball. Pete Rose does not belong in the Hall of Fame. Shoeless Joe Jackson does not belong in the Hall of Fame. You should not get your information from movies or tv shoeless joe jackson accepted money to lose baseball games on purpose and the contemporary accounts are that he did that even if he didn't do that no one debates that he accepted money to lose games on purpose so i to sound like a kid missed me with those arguments we're talking about different things you don't get to draft me into those arguments so that's all i'll say on that yeah, no, I think you I think you make a good point. I'm one additional thing. I belong in the Hall of Fame <laughs> because of this podcast. I belong in the great broadcasters wing of the Hall of Fame. Well, hey, Fort Frick Award or not the Fort Frick, Fort Frick's the writers, whatever the other award is that the the uh, the Mikesman get every every year. And I just I would add that it, it's interesting to me that some of these sports seem to have forgotten the lesson of what happens when you let gambling permeate everything about the sport but that's a oh and we'll yeah we we'll, 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 we we can touch on that in one day we will have to do an episode on the actual 1919 world series the the whole thing surrounding that what actually happened the corrections in both directions that have taken place at various points in the last 100 years so before we close if it were up to andrew and i in addition to the six guys already getting in from the veterans committee there would be Five more, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, David Ortiz, and Alex Rodriguez. Andrew adds an additional four, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, Todd Helton, and Jimmy Rollins. I would add an additional two. I wouldn't have those four, but I would have Andrew Jones and Manny Ramirez. I know it's kind of hard to game out, but my strong prediction is that nobody gets in again. And you better hope that Jim Cott and Tony Oliva are able to make some nice long speeches and that maybe they, you know, they have a nice tribute to the Negro League guys and you trot out Gil Hodges' widow and figure out a way to have a good ceremony because chances are none of these guys are getting in. I mean, I guess Ortiz Roland maybe has an outside shot, but I think Roland is the one who's got the best chance to get in. Maybe, but not this year. I don't think based on where his voting numbers are. What are his numbers on those ballots? 
Roland is currently at 69. So that number's going to go up on the votes we don't have. You think so? Most of those guys, if they're voting for somebody, they're not voting for a steroid guy. Mm. I think Roland's got a shot. Interesting. That's a different discussion. Well, no, it's this discussion. <laughs> it is the subject of the podcast. But okay, okay, let me rephrase that. It's late, and I'm tired <laughs> of doing this. <laughs> All right. We hope you enjoyed this. You'll have to, you know, listen to this and then check out the Hall of Fame induction announcement a couple of days after we post, most likely. And uh, we will be back in later in 2022 with some even more fun. But until then, I'm Dan Newman, and I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.